Welcome to the Feeling Bookish Podcast. Rob Fay here in Portland, Oregon. I got Roman in Astoria, New York, New York City. Welcome, Roman. Uh, you know, Roman, this is, um, you know, this is, a, this is kind of, I'm going to say it's your book, man. Uh, this is a book that, that you have been talking about for, I think, I've been in Oregon three years, and I feel like you've been talking about this book the entire time that I've been here. And, and so it's a fan's notes by Frederick Exley, uh, and it was written in 1969. And, you know, there are, there are sort of cult books um, that everybody seems to know. And then I think there are cult books that no one knows. And I think this falls into, you know, the, the latter category. Um, I, you know, generally know of all the books I probably should read, but haven't read, but this is a book that, um, I had never even heard of until you started talking about. And, you know, if you don't know Roman at this point from the podcast or from Twitter, he is a, book pusher evangelist mm -hmm. par excellence. When he loves a book, the entire world will know about it. And um, he will be dogged until people take note. And if you also don't know, Roman and I have been friends since we were children, basically, uh, probably like 30 years. And he's been pushing books for 30 years. In fact, I, I remember one of the first things you kind of pushed on me was you said, you know, there's this guy named Thoreau and he lived near us in Concord <laughs> and he had this essay and it was all about just walking in the woods. That's it. Can you believe it? He made, he wrote a masterful essay about walking in the woods. And I remember being really, that was fascinating. And that, that led us to, to going to Walden Pond and to, you know, some really, really great stuff. So Roman, I'm just going to kick this over to you how did you come across this book? Why, why do you love it? Because I have to say your passions tend to be more towards the avant-garde, more towards European lit. Um, this is a very American book. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And you so, know, I, yeah, I mean, like, like you said, I mean, I, a lot of these passions that I have are really rooted uh, in, in the writing itself. Uh, if the writing if the style really captures me, uh, the content uh, could be almost anything. Uh, so the style usually get, gets me excited. Of course, what I get most excited about is when both elements are present, when you have something really interesting in the content, uh, not necessarily interesting in any kind of intellectual way, but made interesting by the author's perspective. So it could be almost something boring, normally considered boring. But you know, my, my point is that you know the author presents it in such a way that it makes it really relevant and then it's when it's wedded to an amazing style that things really connect for me and, and make it uh, an exciting read and so when I, I first became aware of Frederick Exley's uh, fans notes through William Gaddis ah. uh, William Gaddis is a uh, of course a masterful American writer of the middle to late 20th century who um, who is woefully underread and to my mind and to many people who consider books, uh, fiction particularly, uh, as as very important to their lives, consider Gaddis to be a god. Um, and um, uh, William Gass, for instance, uh, worshipped him. Well, not worshipped him, but they were really good friends, but he really recognized his genius. In fact, William Gass was often mistaken for Gaddis. It's quite a, kind of funny. Um, but uh, so, so Gaddis, you know, reading all of Gaddis at one point in the 90s when I discovered Gaddis uh, and it was my mind was on fire with everything Gaddis, um, I noticed he kept on mentioning 
uh, fans' notes in his uh, nonfiction, in his essays, and and his letters and stuff like that. Um, and I so I looked it up briefly and like, oh, it's about football. I am not particularly interested in football, so maybe I'll check it out later or something. And then you know, just kind of forgot about it. And about three years ago, like you mentioned, when I first started pestering about it, I was uh, walking the the pavements of uh, the Upper East Side uh, in New York City, and I stumbled on a on a guy selling books on the streets. And there was a beautiful edition, a modern library edition of Frederick Exley's A Fan's Notes. Um, modern Library, of course, is a, a prestigious imprint where you know if you see a Modern Library book. You know, it's quote-unquote important, you know, for American letters at least. Um, and so for a song and three bucks, I got this book um, and uh, started reading it pretty much immediately just because I had some time to kill. And immediately, immediately my mind was set on fire and I realized why Gaddis loved this book so much because the prose is amazing. It's an it's a beautifully written book. I think there's a stupid quote uh, on the back of this American uh, uh, library, modern library edition. Uh, it's a stupid because it's it's you know it's like any blurbs. They're pretty you know stupid. <laughs> but it's it's from Newsday and it says the best novel written in the English language since The Great Gatsby. Uh, that's saying a lot, right? That's saying a ton right there. Um, in a kind of a stupid, blurby way. But there's some element of truth to it because the prose here is is outstanding. Um, and just if you just like American prose and American literature, you really should read this book because uh, the language is fantastic. And, and I, I, you know, I, I totally agree. And, and that's the part that um, drew me in initially because I... I, I I guess I had a certain, um, I had browsed the book a little bit and was, was a bit skeptical. I guess I was expecting that this might be, maybe it's the prejudice I have against the, uh, the vintage contemporary series, which makes me think of um, a lot of those American realist fiction writers from the 80s, people like um, Richard Ford. Mm. Um, and Raymond Carver to a certain extent, although I love Raymond Carver. And I just thought, yeah, I, I worked through all of those writers and I'm kind of done with that. Um, but this is a very different beast. Um, you know, I, I actually picked, it was hard to choose, but I picked a, a, a sample, which I think exemplifies the prose and the rhythm of it and the playfulness of language, which which I'd like to read, but um, maybe I'm so glad because you know what I, I was trying to do that too, like find a passage that I wanted to uh, quote to people to make them understand how beautiful the prose is. And I couldn't choose. Yeah. <laughs> it's just so hard because it's just so many. And, so I'm and, glad you did. and before I, before I do that, maybe I'll just, uh, you know, quickly set the scene of the book. So it's what you might call these days, a fictional memoir. It's a book by Frederick Exley about a character named Frederick Exley, who grows up, is it Westchester County in New York, Roman? Is no, that? no, no, it's much no. further up. It's, it's about okay. 300, 320 miles north of New York City by okay. Lake, uh, was it Lake Ontario, I believe? It's a, it's a small town called Watertown, New York, uh, which is, you know, very typical small town, kind of cow town America. Yeah. Um, which, by the way, if you Google Watertown, New York, you, it's interesting because it's, 
it's a it's otherwise an undistinguished town, right? Just like a little small town in upstate New York, well, what only about what twenty thirty thousand residents, tiny. Uh, but it's got uh, an interesting history. I mean, there's um, famous people who were born there and who write about it, and there's a film set in it. So it's got something about it that's that's unusual. Yeah, you know, it's not just yeah. some, any old cow town. So, so this this character Frederick Exley, he grows up, and his father is a uh, a, a famous uh, football player and basketball player in the town, and, and becomes one of those, you know, uh, legends locally. Um, and so his father, as he as he ages, um, you know, isn't able to make the next leap to to the pros and becomes this somewhat disappointment. But his son uh, grows up worshiping worshiping him as 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 most sons do of their dad, but eventually becomes aware that his dad is kind of this washed up dude who's playing semi professional football. And there's this fantasy that exists that he has to almost play with that his dad, you know, whatever could have made it or this and, and this starts to open up the novel to this whole idea of um, hopes and dreams and celebrity like and, and the, the character Frederick Exley starts to develop this Walter Mitty like uh, imaginary life where he he starts to convince himself that, you know, he's going to be famous. Uh, and in his case, it starts to develop this idea that he's going to become uh, a famous novelist. And so we we follow this character as he he lives this illusion of destiny, of of fame. And he he ends up going to USC, and he uh, he lives in Chicago for a while. And gradually, he begins, I think, to see the 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 falseness of 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 both his his father's life. And also what he's inherited, and he kind of spins into alcoholism, and he spends a couple of stints in uh, mental institutions, and really, you know, has a small go at a public relations career, but um, he can't fit in, you know. And I've I've heard people describe this novel as a as an outsider novel, and I, I have a few thoughts on that. I'm not sure it's exactly right, but. Um, so, so, you know, much of the book deals with his struggle with alcoholism and also his time in these two psychiatric facilities uh, in upstate New York. And, and so one of the passages I want to sort of read to get a sense of the prose is this hilarious scene. And again, the, we should also point out this book is outrageously funny. Oh, my God. Like, so funny. Outrageous. I laugh out loud funny. Absolutely. Outrageous. And and. And, and to really indicate the master that he is, it's also side by side with a lot of sadness. This is a terribly sad book that also manages to be laugh out loud funny. So for that alone, um, it deserves an enduring spot. But um, this particular scene, he's doing one of his stints at the hospital. And there's this marvelous character called uh, Patty Duke or Patty the Duke. Patty the Duke, yes, yes. So he's this kind of stoic Irishman who 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 is sort of snobby towards the rest of the patients, and kind of and 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 seems head uh, as he works his way through treatment, um, and he's dismissive and he's you know very blunt, and he starts to beat the hell out of everyone at ping pong, which in this particular uh, ward at the hospital is really all the patients have for recreation and enthusiasm. And so 
for nine days, he just kicks their ass. You know, Frederick Exley and his boys cannot beat Patty the Duke. And here's a, um, a description of, of, of what's going on at that time. So the narrator says, how can I describe those nine days? Even after my fiasco, we began them on a note of contemptuous and hopeful hostility. We ended them. We who had already been locked up as being, well, let's be kind and say, rather singular personalities, as drooling, raving, temple pounding, hair pulling lunatics, as close probably to real insanity as any of us had ever been. Patty's ping pong game was no game. He had no serve. He had no backhand. He had no slam. He had, in effect, no offense whatever. All Patty could do was return the ball, and that return became our monomania. It was the fever in our brains. It was the longing in our hearts. It was Ahab enlisting us in a blasphemous bargain toward our own destruction. We went to bed with that return. We dreamed about it. We rose up to that return. We lived all our waking hours with it, trying to fathom its perverseness. Oh, I mean, I, I mm-hmm. what could I say? It, it, the, the rhythm yeah. Um, the repetition of sentences, you know, subject, verb, object for a while, and then changing up that pattern, the the insertion of, you know, vernacular, and then with the literary, it's it's the command, right? It's yeah. Yeah. He's master- definitely in command of the language. I mean, he's 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 driving it like a well, well trained horse. And, uh, and, and just as just as Patty the Duke is, you know, dominating the ping pong, it's almost as if Frederick Exley, the novelist, is showing off too in that. In that, you know, yeah. Watch, sometimes watch it sounds like it's, yeah. Sometimes it sounds like he's kind of showing off a little bit his his amazing writing skills, but it all blends. There's no there are no sharp edges. There's, there's no something that sticks out more than another. So it's it's a uniform it's a uniformly well written book. Yes. You know what I mean? There's no there's no particular swells of of rhetoric or eloquence because the whole thing is is just very eloquently written. So it doesn't yes. seem out of place once yes. you get into the prose. And and so to add another layer to that, you know, brief summary I gave of the novel, the brief synopsis. So let's add the layer on. So part of this this life I described that he's trying to lead, you know, uh, uh, this this yearning for fame, this this sort of like he he's a bit of a, a pretender when it comes to being a writer. There are lots of literary references, so you're clear the narrator is somebody who is who is reading, and who fancies himself a bit um, as an intellectual, as someone set apart. But he also is kind of a poser through most of this, right? He's not actually writing. He's not actually taking chances in a sense. Um, but part of Part of this journey he has through life is um, is paralleled with his admiration and envy and uh, deification of Frank Gifford. So they they end up at USC together. Frank Gifford is a is an all American you know uh, halfback at at USC. And for those who who don't know, Frank Gifford is an actual was an actual uh, football star who was at USC and then with the New York Giants. Um, and so. His adoration of the play of Frank Gifford, and, and Frank Gifford represents e- everything that America seems to be selling at that time. And I think maybe unlike the America of today with its own, with all of its own problems, I, I don't know. I think people are maybe less gullible 
to some aspects of like, we can all be Frank Gifford. But I wonder in the late 50s, if it was just easier to really almost imagine that, yes, we can all be Frank Gifford. We can all have that singular stride, that that defined jaw, that that sort of casual handsomeness, so all of those things that, um, you know, he, he kind of admires. Um, and so it's not really a book about football, I think, as you kind of hinted at. Um, but it, it helps to focus our mind on this piece of the advertising media consumption machine that was just getting going after World War II, mm. it was just getting perfected in the 1950s, was starting to really come at Americans. And, and according, I think, to the narrator, you know, really having a devastating sort of effect on I don't know, the soul of Americans. Um, but I'm sure you have a lot to say about that, Roman. But I, I want to throw out one, one theme that um, is very, very interesting and I think ties a lot of this together. And it's this idea of uh, impotency, which, which is a, an interesting theme. And, and impotency first comes up in this uh, relationship he has with this you know, classic beauty right who who he falls for and she oh bunny sue right bunny yeah sue. and she's like the all-american girl with blonde hair and and he just can't Golden believe thighs. it yeah yes. <laughs> and so it's all there but he is impotent they can't consummate their relationship and you know bunny gets books on you know the kama sutra and all sorts of you know sexual positions and you know works with him and blah 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 um but he can't do it and they eventually break up, but he he starts to feel that um, it was it was meant to be in a sense because if he had been able to consummate this relationship, he would have been so gossip-struck and and in love in a sense that he would have married her and had kids and got involved in this whole American dream kind of rat race um, that that this book is critical of, right? Um, and in impotency all also comes through in some other characters with uh, this salesman named Mr. Blue, who he encounters. And Mr. Blue has this fascination with, uh, uh, to be frank, you know, with oral sex. And cunnilingus, specifically. Cunnilingus. There yes. we go. And so, um, which apparently you know, he's never actually experienced. It's kind of exactly. a fantasy aspect right. of, of. And, and of so he's this life. salesman, right? The quintessential. American salesman door to door selling aluminum siding, you know, some god awful product. Product, um, but at a certain point, the narrator says that um, uh, you know clearly there's probably the reason he was so obsessed with um, uh, with oral sex was he probably wouldn't have been able to consummate a relationship, you know, uh, uh, any other way, you know, i.e., he was impotent. So I. Mm. In some ways, in the world that Frederick actually is describing, uh, in this American Frank Gifford, go out and make your mark, there really is nothing more threatening, more un-American, really, than being impotent. Um, and it's an interesting thing to think about, for example, with Donald Trump, who um, conveys this sort of, um, you know, faux, macho kind of strength, right? 
um, and he saunters around and, and, you know, um, you know, has made all, made all these illusions about, you know, whatever the women he's conquered or these women aren't attractive or, and there is a kind of like, you know, I am the very opposite of impotency, right? I, I'm, I'm the swaggering, uh, swinging dick to be quite honest. And, and so th- I think there's a lot there in the American psyche that Frederick Exley is, um, is oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a really interesting passage because, first of all, Mr. Blue comes to a very horrifying end. Uh, it's it's both, again, funny and, and very sad at the same time. Uh, just his death is really one of the highlights of the book, actually, for me anyway. Um, but but you're right, Rob. He um, he meets this you know, all American girl and he's he's kind of of on the on the lookout remember this you know he's in his early 20s at this point mid 20s he's about 25 i believe or 26 when he meets her he's already had a bunch of sexual experiences that he's you know of the one night stand type um but with bunny sue it's different she really captures his heart or he thinks you know he's infatuated and he thinks he's in love but then later on he realizes that it wasn't really love it was some sort of this Ameri- part of the american dream that he was going to get this gorgeous young blonde uh you know, wholesome mid-america blonde that he kind of was fantasizing all his life about and finally there she is um but yet he can't consummate the relationship at all i mean at this point he's already drinking heavily so this this could have been part of the problem um but uh, he also goes to, uh, you know, they, they, try to, they try to have sex and they, they can't, but they still are very lovey-dovey towards each other. And then she finally invites him to meet her parents. And he is absolutely horrified by her parents. They're, they're, um, um, they're, they're what's the worst of middle America, kind of middle class uh, stereotypes. They're, they live in the kind of in the suburban boonies. Um, the father is so, so proud of his new garage opener that he, he has to show Fred his, this new garage opener. It, it makes him open the garage door one, you know, one time after another and just, you know, basically very shallow kind of existence that they live over there. And he describes this as he used the word horrible. They're just horrible people. Um, not in any kind of, you know, judgmental sense. Yeah, obviously he judges them, but, but in some, almost like kind of a spiritual sense, you know, metaphysical sense. Um, so, and then, and then he realizes that this was really just kind of this infatuation. And what the funny thing is kind of the, li- the lit- literary part of this relationship is he, she writes him this long letter because they're oftentimes yes. separated. He's in the, he's in Chicago. She's uh, up North and somewhere in some weird suburb. Um, so she writes him the, these long letters and they're all punctuated with, with dashes and exclamation marks, which he can't stand. He can't just he can't stand them. So he, he comes to this uh, wonderfully literary realization that he was saved from having an awful life with, with this woman if he had married her um, and was able to consummate the marriage by, he was saved by the dash and the exclamation mark. <laughs> totally. Very, very literary kind of uh, approach to, uh, to dealing with it. And in fact, all of, his, all of his woes, all of Fred's woes in this book seem to be um, looked through, at, through a prism uh, of literature, uh, which is, again, why I think this book is so rich, uh, 
for people who love literature, because like you mentioned, Rob, there's a ton of allusions and downright direct references to literature, yeah. uh, everything from Nabokov to Hawthorne um, to um, um, you know, Augie, Augie March, uh, Saul Bellows, a uh, guy in Chicago. Uh, because he does love Chicago when he arrives there. He, it, it seems to him the city of promise because he fails. He fails in the first, at first in New York to be a, to be a, a company man. You know, he just completely fails. He, he puts on the right clothes. He, he's got the right pipe that he smokes. And, uh, you know, he, he pounds the street with, with his resume that's completely made up, by the way, that his friends at USC made, you know, helped him just compose this resume just outrageously false, but also, you know, supposed to get him this job that he really wants but he fails if even once he gets something he just fails at it um and then he goes to chicago and he fails there as well and that that's where he meets bunny sue that's when he starts drinking heavily <laughs> yeah and um, he he um uh when he goes to chicago again to connect the the literary with the story he he is in love with Saul Bellow, uh, and, and he quotes the famous first line of, of The Adventures of Augie March, I am an American Chicago-born, mm. Chicago, that somber city, you know, and he says when he initially got there, he, he said, you know, I don't, I don't agree with that characterization of Chicago being a somber city. He was still in the throes of this young man's, um, what he thought would be his uh, ascension to this fame and celebrity that was 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 just waiting for him um and but yeah the, the literary illusions are are tremendous and i mean i wrote some of them down you know there's hemingway proust uh, a lovely section on edmund wilson yes the great, yes the great the great critic who i i fear is um disappearing forgotten nowadays yeah yeah and th there's um if anyone's interested there's his seminal book of criticism i believe is called um uh, Axis Castle. I, I'm, I might be getting that wrong, but um, incredible writer who, it's very rare that a, a critic's essays uh, last beyond his lifetime, but his are sterling. And I think they're in the modern library collection, uh, the one you're referring to. But he talks about Dostoevsky, um, F. Scott Fitzgerald, um, Hawthorne, I think as you, as you mentioned. Um, yeah, so so, it's a, a a writer's novel in a sense. Um, yeah, anybody. And let's not forget, it's not really a novel. I mean, like like you mentioned at the beginning, it's a quote unquote a fictional memoir. And I want to read here the first thing that you open the book. Uh, a note to the reader from Exley, right? Uh, Though the events of this book bear similarity to those of that long malaise, my life. Many of the characters and happenings are creations solely of the imagination. In such cases, I, of course, disclaim any responsibility for the resemblance to real people or events, which, be, which would be coincidental. The character Patience, for example, who is uh, harangued, uh, depicted as my wife, is a fictionalized character bearing no similarity to anyone living or dead. In creating such characters, I have drawn freely from the imagination and adhered only loosely to the pattern of my past life. To this extent, and for this reason, I ask to be judged as a writer of fantasy. Now, I, I take him at his word, and I, I take it as a fiction. However, Rob, and I, I think you would agree with me, or, or maybe not, I don't know, but I think the power that we get from this book is the idea that these things happened in some form or another. Again, with lots of imagination thrown in there, but it, it, and it comes through 
uh, in the writing is that it feels r real. It feel it feels something. It's not, let's say, um, Anna Karenina or something like that. You know, it's um, it's not a fictionalized character who was created by the author and you know put through the paces in the novel. This is the paces that the author lived, uh, and often it feels very literary. So. Yes, uh, literally so. Not um, not particularly that far removed in in fantasy, um, and I think the power of the book derives from how how close you sort of put that point towards fiction and nonfiction, and not particularly that I'm thinking it's nonfiction. That's where you know I'm getting my my sort of jollies out of this book, but it's. It's the the lived experience. It's the reason why I love Bukowski, for instance. And people people yes. don't read Bukowski for some reason, or academics don't like him. But I love him so much because he's a yeah. He, he bases it on his actual existence, you know, and it's and he yes. puts himself into the work. Yes, um, I I I agree a hundred percent. And I, I I guess a couple of points on that. One is that um, I think. Here we are, fifty years on from this novel, and I think at this point, readers, the publishing world, are are more comfortable with with this blurring of fiction and nonfiction, and and don't even need to parse it out uh, as much uh, as as maybe they might have done when this book is published. Right? We we do know that Frederick Exley, the writer, was in psychiatric hospitals and um, you know struggled with with alcohol. So as you alluded, that's the basis of this, but. Um, I, you know, I, I'm always aspiring that, you know, publishers and bookstores would simply create a new category called literature. And so this would just be literature and we yeah. wouldn't, we wouldn't be concerned about parsing fiction and nonfiction. Yeah. But to, to but a large you, degree, it's a false dichotomy. I agree. Yeah. But, but you create, you, you make a great illusion. I, I thought of Bukowski. The other person I thought of who also as early as the 1930s, I believe was, was blending fiction and nonfiction is Henry Miller. Right. Mm, absolutely. The, these yeah. particularly the um, you know, there's some very body sexual descriptions in this book, uh, not not for those who are uh, in constant uh, politically correct bubble. I mean, some of it's just, you know, wow. It's oh, that's like, true. Yeah, absolutely. And, absolutely. and so um, I can I, I heard the kind of joyful body wink, wink. Uh, of Henry Miller in, in some of the sexual scenes or, or some of the allusions to sex, you know, this kind of, yeah. I mean, it's not quite, it's not quite as, as no, as, but, but there's a kind of like, this is still Puritan America. Let's let it rip. Um, right. Remember the book was published in 1968. So yeah. it's still, it's still an era where, yes. where these things weren't particularly accepted. Um, you know, it's uh, even though Henry Miller, of course, wrote much earlier, but Henry Miller had the advantage of being outside of the country for much of that time yes. uh, in a very different environment. And he, you know, he, he definitely used it to his advantage. Plus, he, Henry Miller actually wrote porn for a living. Uh, yes, exactly. At a time. Uh, and you know, I, time. I was also thinking that um, about the same time, 68, 69, I believe that Philip Roth published Portnoy's Complaint, which... Mm -hmm you know, is very, very clear about, you know, this, this young adolescent and mass masturbation. And, you know, the book made him famous and partly because the people were interested in, oh, this salacious book about, you know, masturbation. Um, it, it's a good thing that Philip Roth got famous because he's, you know, 
Incredibly right, but but let's not give the people the wrong impression that the fans' notes is is no. any kind of Henry Miller type of sex romp. No, no, because no, it's no. not. It's very it's very limited. It's there. It's very limited. Yeah. But um, there's some swearing. You know, fuck is used very occasionally. He just uses it just just the right. It's like seasoning, just the right amount of seasoning to make the the dish very tasty. But definitely not overdoing it. And it's not I, a focus at all. I agree. You know. Like this one, I'm just laughing out loud. There's, um, there's a character in the in the mental institution, the psychiatric ward. Uh, his name is Snow Snow White. He goes by Snow White. Very kind of morose. Very few words that he speaks. But he watches the Ed Sullivan show every night. And the way Exley uh, writes about him says, you know, Snow White had a running dialogue with Ed Sullivan every night. You know, Ed Sullivan would come on and say, "Good good evening, ladies and gentlemen," and and Snow White would say, "Fuck you, Ed." <laughs> you know, just said. So- Perfectly placed um, swearing and sort of a gra- more graphic language. Just, again, just perfectly tastefully, not tastefully, I don't know if that's a stupid way of saying it, but just, just really well placed and used, not gratuitously. But you're right, it's also a product of its time as far as um, dealing with a black community. Uh, yes. Dealing with women. The women are often presented in a negative light, shall we say, or at least they, they, um, some women are, some not. Um, and there's a, I think, actually reflects the racial tensions of the time as well, uh, quite well. And he has this, um, there's a series of dreams that he reports about his dreams uh, throughout the book. And there's one dream that's that really stood out for me. But by the way, the book also ends with a dream that relates that's really super powerful. Uh, but this dream is somewhere in the middle of the book where he he's dreaming that he's in some sort of a social club, you know, a country club in somewhere in Africa, maybe Rhodesia or something like that. And he, you know, he hears all this uh, yes. British English spoken around them and everybody's like, hey, good old chap, you know, they're drinking their tea, they're smoking <laughs> their cigars. Uh, but in the background, he's uh, he's hearing this loud noise, this, this something, this roar in the background surrounding this country club. And he imagines that it's it's all the black people who are outside of this country club, who are clamoring uh, for for attention and for sort of saying, hey, look, we're, we're oppressed down here. We're poor, we're dying. So he can't ignore that noise, you know, and it, it kind of engulfs him in a way, the, the, the dream. And, and throughout the book, there's this, he gets into a fight by calling somebody a racial slur. He does it on purpose because the because of some weird psychological makeup that happens at that moment, and you kind of have to read the book. I can't really explain it. Um, so there's he's he's a product. This book is a product of the times. You know, it's it's a yes. product of the mid to late fifties, all through the mid sixties or so, where things were really changing in America. Um, and as Exley was trying to make himself an American, in fact, the last dream that he has, he's being basically abused by all these white teenagers, uh, and he screams, hey, "Am I not an American? You know, am I not an American?" So uh, there's a lot of this uh, American identity shifting and 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 pulsing and and cracking in so many ways yes. that he exposes <laughs> in this book so so powerfully. Yeah, and that that's. That uh, brings me to a theme I wanted to dig a little deeper into, and but I will also add to uh, to make to make sure people have context. This was not an obscure book 
when it was published at that time. It was a finalist for the National Book Award. So this yeah, was the, this was Walter Award, I believe. Right. So this was vetted by the literary establishment and you know the powers that be and was found to be whatever you know um, well 68 remember 68 is when it's like the thaw type of deal in in yeah. communist russia you know, things kind of were loosening up and and there was more more uh, this this kind of stuff saw more light of day and became more respectable quote unquote yeah. you know but here here's the, the the issue that i i want to throw out there is um and i saw this um here in Portland, uh, I think I tweeted out a photo. One of the staff at Powell's uh, had a little, you know, recommendation on the shelf, like, you know, staff recommendation, a, a really nice note about this book and said, you know, it's, it's you know, a novel for the outsider or, you know, the, the outsider's book or something. And then I, I came across another article online that was kind of delving into this idea that for those of us who feel like outsiders, you know, this, this is a book that that's for us or something. And I guess... I might take issue with the idea that that the narrator and the author are outsiders. I would argue that part of the power of this book is that the narrator is really making the argument that I come from the inside. I, I'm you know born in upstate New York. I'm born to the high school football star. I'm I'm born you know in the bosom of all the expectations and all this American stuff. And I, I, I try to go for it. I try to go for Bunny, the all-American girl. I, I, I yeah, try the Cadillac my, in the garage, the house. Right, I, yeah, yeah, the good I, job. Yeah. I try my, my best working for the railroad and producing the, um, the, uh, you know, railroad in-house magazine for customers. Like, he really makes a go of it. Um, so I really think this is about, uh, uh, you know, a more ordinary American who who simply just, I don't know, becomes a little bit more aware of some of the insanity of what this is all about um, and, and simply just can't fathom a life where he... He, he can't participate in it. He can't participate in the whole system. And I, so I say that he's an insider who becomes, you know, uh, crushed, disappointed. Mm. You know, unlike, I'll contrast that with the beat writers. The beat writers from the very beginning, in a sense, I think were, were outsiders and, and came, came to critique America from a real outside point of view, whether it was from an immigrant family in the case of Jack Kerouac, or whether you're Jewish and gay like Allen Ginsberg, or, you know, all, all these sorts mm. of different kind of spots where I feel like Frederick Exley, and I think this is why the football theme is so, so important, because what could be more American than football? And I'd also add that Frederick Exley is, is a prophet in a certain sense, because um, I should point out for those who aren't football fans, um, up until the time of this book being published, 1970 or so, the number one sport in America by far was baseball. And so it wasn't until the early 1970s when Monday Night Football actually started that this mass audience for football in a television sense came about. 
And then the Super Bowl was established at that time. So, so the passion that he's describing for football in the late 50s, early 60s, it was a minority perspective, almost the way like fans of Major League Soccer today in the U.S., right? This mm. is a, a subculture. Mm. Yeah, a subculture in a sense. So, so I think he, he's really, he understands a lot about America that, you know, now football and has been for the last 30 years, unquestionably, right? the premier sport for America, right? Baseball is now a, you know, uh, a nostalgic subculture of, you know, older men or something like that. So, um, so that's kind of how I think about this whole insider outsider. Yeah. I, 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 I like that point, Rob, because I was actually thinking, uh, along similar lines, I was wondering, not thinking, but just wondering why Exley, in the 50s and 60s didn't align himself more with the beatniks because I'm surely surely he was aware of them but you're right he was inside he was trying to be inside because he was born into that kind of life to a high school football star uh he went to USC he yes. you know, he had a good education um but he he then kind of pilfers it all away because he can't seem to be he, he doesn't feel like he's an authentic person when he tries to fit in. And right. so he keeps on bouncing from job to job. And William Gaddis uh, has this wonderful essay called The Rush for Second Place, where he really condemns American culture and its uh, weird Calvinist, uh, you know, uh, Protestant work ethic wedded to capitalism and how it's um, how it really is such a negative influence on society and, and, and brings out you know, profits over any kind of uh, inherent meaning. Um, and so Exley kind of lives that. He lives yeah. through that and he, he, he's the worst for wear for because of that because mm-hmm. he, just, he just can't handle it. He does not know how to be an authentic human being. He can't get a heart on. Basically, yeah, in this, and 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 in some sense, literally with Bunny Sue, um, he just can't get a hard on for this American dream. Exactly. That that's where the uh, the impotency theme yes. for me sort of comes through, and and you know to be to even go deeper to be impotent, you're only impotent if you have an expectation that mm. you're going to be excited and you know, attracted to this person in in this sexual sort of metaphor. Whereas if I go back to William Burroughs and some of those people, I think they knew it was, they understood America almost from day one or something. Yeah, they they they, just assumed that and went from that point. While while actually kind of tries to, tries to all all throughout the book, he just keeps trying to fit in. I mean, he even goes to 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 the psychiatric ward. I mean, voluntarily. Pretty right. much voluntarily, he's like I just because he spends months and months on end on his mother's Davenport, uh, yes. you know, eating eating Oreo cookies and playing with the dog and and getting drunk, and and and, and just continue this pattern continues throughout his twenties uh, and thirties where he just and, tries something and then boom he's back on the couch doing right. nothing for months on end except and, drinking, you know, and, and the reason I love Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac in particular is on some level they were always asking America. Where is your joy? Where is your joy, America? Right? And we, we were talking about this before the phone call. And this narrator is not asking that question. He's asking, where is my fame? Where yes. is my fame, America? Well, that's why, right? that's why you know, his right? obsession with Frank Gifford comes in because yes. 
And somewhere in the middle of the book, and yeah, he's in his second stint at the psychiatric institution, and this woman from his past, this patient that he mentions in the the, the note about pay, make, make, making her completely up, from you know, not based on any real character. Her name is Patience in the book. She's actually at first for many many pages only identified as the woman with the roan colored hair. Um, he only gives her the name Patience much later. So this woman starts visiting him at the hospital. She's, you know, she's somebody that he knew way back, you know, maybe in high school or immediately after high school, just tangentially really. But they become, she for some reason visits him and gives him cigarettes and they form this relationship. And then, you know, he tries to explain to her his fascination for football, and and she sits sits there patiently in the in the bar while he's pounding the table and says, "Go, Frank, go, baby," <laughs> you know, and is rooting for the game. And then finally, after some months of this, she asks him this question. So, 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 Fred, what is this with you and Frank Gifford? What's going on? And he it gives him pause for thought because he never really truly verbalize that even to himself what is it about frank gifford that he's so into and so he, he describes all of his prowess to her and and why he's so important to him uh, and then and then she's like well i don't I still don't really get it and and she goes well you know really i think frank is my only my last hope for any kind of fame so he's he's living through frank gifford into this american dream into this fame that he's been imagining for himself Right. He's like, this is my last chance for this fame is right. through this guy who I barely knew at USC, who maybe they've exchanged a sentence or two at USC. Uh, but he feels like he's kind of this almost his own double in a way, the successful American as opposed to the failure. Yeah. Uh, so but he's continually in this state of, of being, quote unquote, the loser. Totally. He's the loser of this society. Totally. Not an outsider, and, like you said, like, you know, the, the, the distinction between the beats and him. Yeah. But he's trying. He's trying to be a winner. And then he's just losing, losing, losing. And he turns to drink, which makes things, of course, worse. Yeah. Uh, and there is, again, some very funny, but also very pathetic and sad scenes involving alcohol. And uh, also, I want to mention that he meant that there are so many characters in this book that he paints, uh, that he describes so beautifully and in such precise psychological insights. Like like we mentioned, Mr. Blue, but there's also his brother in law, this yes. old, kind of obese, cat torturing, weird <laughs> person. It's just fascinating portraits of people that he's bumped into throughout, you know, through this, this experience of living, trying to live the American dream. And even just for that alone, he should be considered a, a great writer, yeah. or at least a very good one. But he makes it himself a great writer by, I think, tying it all together. And it's, you know, he also mentions that he's been, he finally starts, he starts writing after pretending that he's a writer yeah. for many, yeah. many years. He finally starts writing and he just, it flows. He's got thousands of pages. He sometimes writes up to 15,000 words a day. And there are all these vignettes. And he realizes after a while that he just doesn't know how to put them all together, how to tie them all together. And so he burns the manuscript. He completely yeah. gets, gets rid of it. So this is presumably the second time he tries. And to be fair, there's still vignettes, right? The book is very, it's non-chronological. It kind of jumps around. So you start getting a sense of his life only after you read for a while of what's going on. Because he, he starts in the beginning where he's, it's really towards the end of the story, and then he goes back to the beginning of his story, 
of being a, a teenager and a kid and dealing with his famous father. Um, and there's a really poignant scene where, where his father's already working for the telephone company, a local telephone company. He's married and he kind of forego, for, you know, he just, he missed his opportunity of becoming famous, his father. And so he just works as a cableman for the local uh, phone company. But there's a, um, a really powerful scene where uh, there's a, some sort of an exhibition game, uh, a local exhibition game. I think it's a basketball game where, you know, some of the old timers play with the kids. And even though Fred Exley is not a sports, you know, he's not a very athletic guy, even though his father is such a famous, you know, athletic hero locally. Um, he is made by his father to play against him. So father is pitted against the son in this basketball game. And the son, obviously, just being a klutz and it doesn't, you know, he's just gets beaten by the father quite badly. And, and then they walk back home and his father has his hand on Fred, little Fred's shoulder. And Fred is crushed. He is completely psychologically, emotionally crushed by this experience. And his father says, you know, I just had to do it. It's for, the, it's for them. You know, I'm sorry I did it, but it's for them. And it, it's, it's lost on little Fred Exley. He, that's obviously one of the most painful memories of his father that he has, of just being beaten in front of everybody, but he's you know, still athletic and still virile father while this mm. scrawny little kid uh, just can't, can't match his own father that way. You know, I thought that was a very... Totally. Very powerful and, scene. And, you know, um, this isn't really the, the custom in the U.S., but in, in many uh, other countries, they they uh, masculinize the nation, right, as the whatever, the father or, you know, I mean, some countries it's the mother, Mother Russia. But, but this idea that, um, you know, America, the nation, the father, you know, can, can you live up to, right, all, yeah. all the expectations. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, some people have said that the only true American genius is is marketing. And if that's the case, you know, um, what you're getting from this marketing machine, this American machine, um, is, you know, aspirations of, of fame, beauty, perfection, wealth. Um, you know, for women, you're bombarded with this idea you have to be, you know, uh, thin in a certain way and, and have... Uh, skin color, maybe even white skin color. <laughs> this has certainly been the case for many years. Um, so it's, it's, it's grappling with the, I don't know, the inauthenticity that is mm. passed on to people through marketing. And, I, you know, quite frankly, uh, you know, my daily gig is marketing. So I've, I've thought a lot about how, how a how uh, people in an office building, uh, creative people in cases, will get together and and come up with messaging and imaging. And um, it's so interesting how once you've 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 been behind the scenes making the sausage, you really see that a really good message, a really good image, in a really good presentation, it almost starts to become reality. Uh, you, you, it's almost like you're in the reality creating business um, mm. when you're in marketing. And so um, people are on the other end of that, um, you know, have to have but to they can't carried. match the reality, right? When you well, can't match it. that reality, that's, that's where you have this, this dissonance in generally yes. in American life and yes. more broadly in American culture, which has been exported to the rest of the world, unfortunately, yeah. or to most of the world, at least. I, you know, I would, 
I would really encourage readers to check out, it's somewhat related to all this, is, a, is an essay I stumbled across maybe two days ago in Harper's. Um, and it's by the French novelist Michel Houellebecq, who I, is a true outsider, <laughs> is somebody who um, always seems to be uh, uh, kind of a contrarian point of view. And he wrote an essay in Harper's called President Trump is a Good President. Oh, he's, Trump is a good president. That was the title. And I was like, okay, all right, let me check this out. So um, it's interesting in the, in the fact that it's, it's so outside the normal political dialogue of left-right that we have in the United States and much, much of the Western world. And so he's, you know, I, I, he's a weird character. It's hard, to, it's hard to pinpoint. And he's also having some fun, right? He's, he's being somewhat uh, the provocateur, which the French sort of love. Um, but at the end of it, he he makes this case that, um, uh, you know, Donald Trump is a repulsive dude, um, but maybe one of the good things is that this will quickly hasten um, America as the sole power. This will this will push us back down the ladder and we will take our place with, you know, India and China and France and whomever as one among many central powers or whatever. And he, he kind of makes the case that, you know, America, you might enjoy this. You might yeah. enjoy chilling out a little bit, just worrying about what's going on in your own borders. He seems to be describing the France of post-World War II or even post-World War I, where France really was no longer a power. And it was really interesting to read this idea of, like, maybe you can let some of this shit go. You can let it go. The 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 feeling of control and wanting to meddle – and you you might find some uh, rehabilitation mm. in a sense. And, and Donald Trump um, will will hasten this demise. And so it's an interesting essay. Um, yeah, except that he's also hastening our, our demise in general, you know, by, by not believing in, in probably the most for me, and I think it really should be for everybody, the most central issue of our time, which is our environment and how it's uh, changing and changing for the worst totally. and disappearing yeah. really a yeah, lot of the wildlife and stuff. Yeah, I mean, the sixth mass extinction going on right now. So these things that he, that our leaders do not even believe in, um, you know, fine, we'll, we'll step back. We won't be a superpower. We're, we're to a large degree already there, at least symbolically. Um, but unfortunately that step back, uh, is is the timing is awful because what we really need is to take a step forward, but with you know clearer vision and better leadership. Um, uh, you know, uh, undoubtedly, and and again, just channeling Huelbeck, I think what he might say is that you know a, a more humbled, chastened America might actually be less full of hubris. Yeah, I mean that's that's. It might, I mean, I, might come I, to the table yeah. and and chat with the 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 community of nations or well we're going to have to do that regardless we're going to have to do that regardless of what happens on that that level because it's just not ain't going to work otherwise i mean we're all we're all doomed we're all doomed (laughs) no Um, i'm I'm pessimistic for the for the century i'm 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 optimistic for the 22nd century there's going to be a lot of shit flying around um and this is all what frederick actually just to bring it back to this book um, identifies and lives through and it's and it's sort of um, in the time in American life where we were uh, expanding and being a superpower with lots of lots of 
balls, you know, lots of uh, sort of projection, projecting on the rest of the world of our, our, our culture and our values. That's when it really happened, right? Right post World War II, when, when America really got into a stride as a as a as a superpower. Yeah, and actually lives right through the center of that, and he he identifies its hollowness and its and its monstrosity, and he gets chewed up by it quite badly, really badly. Yeah, you know that that's well said, and and when I. Um walk the streets of Portland here and, and, you know, Heston, our sound engineer also lives in Portland and I'm sure he can agree. You more and more, you see the, the casualties who also get crushed. There are, there are so many homeless here in Portland, so many, um, young people who, um, have been for all sorts of reasons, just can't fit in the system, have been abused or have chosen not to fit in or, or have been crushed. Mm. And, and you see that more and more. So I, I don't know if I can want to make any kind of prediction, but um, I know you recently have been revisiting the work of Melville and you, you went out to his farm in Western Massachusetts. And of course, um, his great book, Moby Dick, um, and his legacy disappeared for 70 years after his death until it was resurrected by a scholar, I think, in the 20s or something. Mm-hmm. And so I... To, you know, to be honest, I mean, I don't think people are reading Frederick Exley, um, but but the way that books get revived is little things like this, a, a podcast, a, a, an article of appreciation and, and the snowball effect yeah. can happen. So I, I hope there's a revival because I think he's dealing with some of the the issues that are that we, um, we still we still have the, the exactly the, in, in the advantage right now. Yeah. And the advantage of reading um, an analysis of the same problems 50 years prior is that he's not also – the book doesn't – it's not constrained by the current uh, political atmosphere where we don't say certain things or, or we don't think certain things. And, and so it, it, it allows us to, to look at things through a, um, a fresh lens and um, – Many books become outdated. In fact, most books become outdated. That's why most books disappear. But I, I hope this one doesn't. And I'm, I'm pleased that you. Yeah. Uh, no, that's intru- really well put, Rob. Well, introduced well put. it to me. Yeah, well put. Um, and I, I really think it's, it's, um, it, it works on so many levels. But, but I, I want to stress for those who love literature. I'm assuming the people listening to us are loving you know love literature that this is a, a, a literary work par excellence it's yes. written again just to go back to my first point it's the writing will pull you in and then you will you will be horrified you will be saddened it's a really sad book and you will laugh uproariously and out loud and you will you will gain insights um but again primarily you will love reading it. It's it's a it's a wonderful reading experience of of the English language, particularly the American idiom of mid mid twentieth century. But still, I mean, I had to look up a bunch of words, and it's not in a kind of a dry scholastic way. Just he, he uses them, he uses the language masterfully. Yeah. So this is a master writer. I mean, even though his later books didn't quite match that high level, he did write two or three more fictional memoirs, quote unquote. But um, this is the best one, and just my last word, extraordinarily highly recommended. Yeah, and if any writer can just leave us one great book, that's enough. 
That's yeah. that's really enough. Yeah. And yeah. so, um, so we'll see. We'll see if it continues to be um, reprinted. Uh, and more importantly, does it just get talked about within, you know, the tiny, tiny, tiny literary world that includes certain publications, Twitter, certain podcasts, et cetera. So I, I hope so. Um, so that brings us to the end. Um, we're really excited to, to, to turn to our next book. Um, we're going to really change gears as we like to do uh, and we need to do is uh, we're going to look at a Chinese science fiction novel and it is titled The Three-Body Problem. And maybe, Roman, I'm not sure if you know how to pronounce the author's name. Um, the last name is Lu. L-I-U. Uh, the first name is C-I-X-I-N. So um, Yeah, I'm going to have to look that up too, man. Yeah, Sorry. And, <laughs> and, and if anyone on Twitter um, maybe Sing can... Jing, something like that. Yeah, maybe he, could, he or she could tweet us a, a phonetic pronunciation. That would be kind of cool because I think we have pretty cool listeners and there's probably somebody who either speaks Chinese or has studied Chinese. Um, so that's our next book. And I think um, our sound engineer, Heston Hoffman, will join us, which we always appreciate. So that's kind of it. So I'll sign off. Robert Fay one on Twitter. I also write for Three Quarks Daily. Uh, check me out if you can. And Roman Sifkin, the popular Twitter feed, at Zenju. So Roman, uh, that's all I have. Any final words or are you done? <laughs> no, I think we're done, man. Just, just, okay. just read this book. Read it. Read it. There Good. you go. Straight straight from the book pusher himself, Roman Sifkin. <laughs> All right, man. Talk to you next time. Till next time. Take care. Cheers.